Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a Kingkiller Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone Season 2, Episode 21, The Pitfalls of Utilitarianism, where we will be looking at chapters 39 through 41 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of the greater good. The greater good. Did I do it right that time? You did. <laughs> As per usual, each week we will be examining a section of The Wise Man's Fear through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text to apply to our real lives. We will also take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text within Aristotelian for Nemos of the Week. After that, we will expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact, and then we will share a recommended thing of the week. Finally, we will wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books. Secondly... We assume that you have read The Name of the Wind, The Wise Man's Fear, probably The Slow Regard of Silent Things, and if we're lucky, The Lightning Tree, though I'm not sure how many spoilers we've actually given for The Lightning Tree, but just in case. Needless to say, beyond this point, there be spoilers, here be spoilers, something be spoilers, there are spoilers. Also a word to our community, please be kind to yourselves, one another, and the creators of the worlds we love exploring. Also, remember, these are books. There are lots of books. You can go read another book if you are tired of waiting for a book. Just saying. This may or may not be prompted by the fact that due to the World Builders charity event, Pat was on Twitter. <laughs> Moral of the story, never go on Twitter. Yeah. I mean, I know we're on Twitter, but it's only for this podcast, and I don't like reading the comments on Pat's tweets because there be lots and lots of buttheadery. Anyway, it's time for a 45-second recap of the section this time around, and it is my turn. Yep. I'm getting the timer up as we speak. Yay. Please no raspberries. Please no raspberries. Please no raspberries. Please raspberries, no raspberries. Raspberries, raspberries. No. Yes. No raspberries. That, but remove the no in front. Yes. No. Except yes. Can you just get your stupid timer up, please? Thank I'm you. ready when you are. <laughs> All right. In three, two, one. Go. On the way to the archives to settle their drunken bets, Will fills Kvothe in on the context of Sim's family and home life. It's not great. Then, after Sim and Kvothe's wager ends in an unsatisfying draw, the older boys decide to finally introduce Kvothe to Puppet, who tells Kvothe that while he is a looker, he is definitely not a seer. Kvothe leaves with a lot to think about. A few weeks later, Kvothe distracts Sim while the latter is trying to study by talking about this world's Joseph Mangoa and how he was probably a secret emir. He also picks a fight with a couple of rich kids and gets suspended from the archives as a result. 35.71 seconds. <laughs> no raspberries this week, unfortunately. Take away the un. Fortunately. No. Fortunately. No. Fortunately. Unfortunately, yes. 
Fortunately. Unfortunately, yes. No, no, no. Fortunately. Unfortunately, yes. No. Yes. Anyway, moving on. No. <laughs> Let's talk about the greater good. The greater good. Do I have to do that every single time that you say that? Yes. That's the rules. And anytime you say the greater good. The greater good. I will also echo and in tone in kind. The greater good? The greater good. That was bad. Try it again. The greater good. I'm better at it. <laughs> Whatever. So we start off with chapter 39, Contradictions, where we start to get some of the contradictions in Sim. First, we see that Kvothe has sort of a infantilized view of Sim. Our little Sim. Right. In spite of being three years older and two inches taller, Kvothe still thinks of Sim as the little one. Okay, so have you had that friend that just, they don't swear and they're very naive sounding and while you know that they're intelligent and you know that they're maybe even older than you, but at least the same age as you, you kind of feel protective of them. And the moment that they do swear, you look at them and go, what the heck did you, what? I mean, my best friend from high school was like that for many years. I think he still is. He's like almost 40 and I'm sure I've heard him swear, but I'm sure it's still like, huh? I've gotten used to it. Mileage helps. I mean, my best friend from college, same thing. She swore a couple of times and I looked over and I'm just like, the fork you say? It also sort of leads us to understand that Sim's jolly, happy-go-lucky demeanor does hide some genuine sadness. Even though Sim is probably one of the most generally benevolent people out there and one of the people who does see the best in people. He does have his own fair share of wounds. And we also get a sense here that perhaps Will and Quoth are the closest things that he has to family. In spite of having nobility in his background, and in spite of having a fair amount of money, his father does not see any value in him in his pursuits and has functionally disowned him. There's a reason why... Sim is always at the university. He never goes home for visits. He never leaves for holidays. He's never gone for any of the breaks. He's always just around. It's one of those reminders that just because someone seems happy on the surface doesn't mean they don't have cause for unhappiness. The end of this little section is, I suspect our gentle bookish Sim was probably not given the love a clever son deserves. What I love about Sim and his characterization is that generally that description of gentle and bookish is applied to not straight men. But Sim, at least, I mean, he could be bi, but he is at least interested in women romantically, probably sexually, and no one that we are supposed to like looks down on him for his gentle bookish nature. I've also found that people who come from certain types of status have certain expectations placed on them regarding their educational pursuits, where they're expected to enter certain lines of work, or certain courses of study, 
And the idea of choosing what you study based on passions and desires and what actually is fulfilling to you is alien. This is why you get some people who, if their chosen course of study is not either business or computer science, end up running into problems with their family. It's something that many people who have entered the liberal arts have had to contend with. I know I did. Though my family never disowned me or anything like that, I do know that there were some very hard conversations about my choice to pursue a philosophy degree, knowing that it would mean that finding a career would be harder. Finding something with status would be harder. It's interesting that status is made such a big deal of because I think I'm happier not pursuing it. Like, there are times when I regret some of my academic choices. Every now and then I wish that I had chosen something that would make my professional life a little easier. Because ultimately, being a philosophy major has not necessarily made it easier for me to sell my educational background. I've had to work on that. And it's meant I've had to do a lot of extracurricular catch-up work. But I also know that that liberal arts study that I did also helped me to be able to analyze arguments. It's helped me be able to understand people and also understand the roots of certain lines of thinking and think critically about them. It is a difficult thing to be able to sell, but it's something you can definitely show when the chips are down. This th reminds me a little bit about how my grandfather treated my uncle after college and in college because my uncle chose to study literature and art and history instead of going into business or agriculture. And I empathize with my uncle and I can see echoes of my grandfather's treatment of him and how Sim feels about his family. I know that this sort of treatment is very hard for a lot of people to deal with and it's something that can leave long-lasting emotional wounds. I can empathize very strongly with Sim in this case. I can understand where he is coming from, even as my own family was pretty accepting overall. I'm sure that they came at it from a concern for you rather than a judgment of you. That's correct. Like I say, it was a difficult conversation. And I also think at this stage, if your goal is to find a job, maybe liberal arts is not your best <laughs> course of study. <laughs> but I also think you should be prepared for what you're going to have to do to find work. We don't live in an economy anymore where having any bachelor's degree is enough to get you a job. You're going to have to do a little bit of extra work to make ends meet, especially in those early going. What I would say about liberal arts is that it is important to have a well-rounded education. And even if you go into something like computer science, coding, hard science, any number of things that are more marketable, quote, marketable, than a philosophy degree, I would highly recommend that you stack your electives with liberal arts everything. Literature Speculative fiction is even a more granular thing that I got to take. I got to take classes on comic books because of the school that I went to. My degree was in game design, but I also had a lot of 
This is how you do scripting. I didn't get into coding because that required hard math and we already had a rather stacked curriculum. But I have an English minor because I chose to stack my electives with classes by some of the best liberal arts teachers I have ever come across. And I'll also say that it's not just literature, things like history can be really valuable, philosophy. One thing that I think about is the university in Quoth's world is suspiciously lacking in ethics training. Oh God, they just expect that the rules that are like, hey, stick, wrap your knuckles, you did something bad, are going to be enough to instill ethics into a person. Exactly. And we'll also get to the limits of the university's ethical training further on here. And we can understand why maybe Quoth doesn't think so much about it and has almost no ethical thought. I'm not saying Quoth is immoral. I'm saying that Quoth does not think about things from an ethical framework. Morality and ethics are different. <laughs> I would agree with that. So moving on, let's talk a little bit about the wagers. So our first wager is between Sim and Quoth, and it regards the origins of the Waystones or Greystones. I think that this section is very interesting and is not focused on well enough, but I think that that's kind of the genius of it because I want more information, damn it. We get little seeds that might become something more. So like Sim, of course, is convinced that these are something about pagan rituals and things like that. And Kvo thinks that these are remnants of an ancient civilization that used these as way marking. I kind of think they're both. <laughs> I kind of think that they might really be markers of how to get into other realms. And I'm not sure that the Fey realm is the only other realm. Entirely possible. If you have accepted the possibility of another parallel world outside of our own, why stop it too? So one of the things that really interested me was the account of the doorpost, which is a pair of matched stone monoliths with a third across the top that parents forbid their children from spending time near when the moon is full, as during these times, people could pass back and forth into the Fae and encounter Felurian. Oh dear. I love these books. I love these books. I love these books. Some of this stuff is a little cringy. I love these books. I also think this could be a clue about the Doors of Stone. We also learn that Sim kind of cheated a little bit here in his research because instead of actually doing a full search... Or even asking the Scrivs... He just had Puppet direct him to some books without really reading all of them. Or any of them. He figured that he was right, so therefore anything that he found would just confirm that he was right. Turns out, nope. It's inconclusive. Yeah, and unsatisfying. We then move on to our second wager, which is between Willem and Quoth, which is about the origins of the Amir. We've got two competing theories. Willem believes that the Amir were an arm of the Aeturian government, while Quoth is convinced that the Amir were part of the church. I mean, why not both, but... And it's also worth noting that Ator is essentially a proxy of Rome. 
When you look at the history of the Roman Empire, especially as we entered into the medieval period where you had the power of the Roman Catholic Church, which wielded parallel power on par with nation states, and most nation states had to, in some fashion, owe fealty to the church, you find yourself in this weird position where agents of the church were as powerful, if not more so, than official members of the governments. That power is very difficult to intertwine. It's something that, as people who have grown up in the United States where separation of church and state is an assumed role, it's difficult to think of it that way. And there is also a very real reason why, if you go to, for instance, Western Europe, there is a conscious decoupling of church and state powers to the point where people are far more openly secular than in the U.S. because they have seen the entire pitfall surrounding just exactly what happens when church and state power is too intertwined. It's interesting to me to see how much more people and governments in Europe take history into account than people in the United States. I mean, yes, we are a younger nation, but we are made up from a lot of people from a lot of different older nations. Not going to go into that too much. But it's like we stopped believing in historical events that happened anywhere but the United States at any time before it was settled by Europeans. Honestly, when you look at the actual history that gets taught about the founding of the United States and the historical context that it existed in, a lot of it stops once you get to 1776. And it does not examine the actual colonial period prior to that and what was actually at play there. It doesn't examine the political forces that were in play during that era, the means of exploitation that were being used, and it doesn't really examine the role that European colonists played in that. If you consider the global colonial system as your engine of oppression, the colonists and the people who worked on the ships and all of that, these were the teeth of the gears that were grinding people into dust. Yep. On top of that, so many people in the United States have never left the United States. And when some of them do and see buildings that are older than the formal United States, some people are hit with the gravitas of just how young of a country we are and how poorly educated we are about history in general. One thing that this section, I think, really encompasses is the difficulty of studying history. Yes. Primary sources in particular are a tricky wicket because these are the accounts of the people who lived in that time and as such can be very useful. However, people who live in a time have their own agendas and they have their own viewpoints that they're considering. So anytime you read a primary source, you have to understand that this is not necessarily the 100% factual account of what happened. This is how someone either viewed it 
or wanted other people to view it. And if you look at it through that lens, that can be useful in its own way. So here's where we get to an odd contradiction. I do want to point one other thing out. Some of these primary sources could have been altered. We take for granted that a primary source thing has been transcribed accurately. Or kept intact altruistically. There are any number of ways that a historical record can be altered because, remember, prior to the printing press, everything was hand transcribed. So that meant that having a copy of a book was something that only a few people could afford because transcribing a work like that was time consuming and painful. People could spend a lifetime just copying a previously written work. You have to do that by hand and you're liable to run into mistakes. So even if we assume that everyone is being 100% above board, you run into issues where you are ultimately making a copy of a copy of a copy. And hoping that you can read somebody else's handwriting. On top of that, it's a very specialized skill, especially as there were limited people who could read and or write. And politics. So let's say you have someone who is dedicated to transcribing things accurately. And you may also have to do translations. Let's leave translation out of it for now, because that is its own ball of wax. Yeah. So let's say you're transcribing, and someone has maybe dropped two blotches of ink that make it difficult to make out exactly what a given word is supposed to be. Innocent mistake. And you are trying to figure out what that is and how to preserve this and pass on the text. Now, again, your goal here is not to distort. Let's say you've narrowed it down to two possibilities for which it is. And maybe there's one that is the narrative that you're most comfortable with and you're happiest with, the one that fits with what you've been taught over the decades of your education. And there's one that's maybe a little more unorthodox. You're put in this position where you have to make a choice. And your choice does matter because this is what will get passed down through further generations. Given everything else, the entire context that you've grown up in, it is far more likely that you will accept this orthodox reading as opposed to the unorthodox. Even if the unorthodox is the one that was actually written down. So you make a judgment call and preserve this version of orthodoxy and you have introduced a divergence. You've created an alternate history to what happened without even necessarily meaning to. And this is important to this part of the story because we find two versions of a text written by two different historians that directly contradict one another. And these are both respected scholars too. It's not like one is some ranting and raving that you found on the dark web. These are both established and well-known authors who people regard as being generally authoritative. There are a couple of colorful descriptors of some of the personality traits of each one of them, or at least what Kvothe assumes are their personality traits. The one that Kvothe wants to believe is written by someone who he describes as a bigot, but is 
generally well-respected and truthful. And then the other one who has a more neutral description that Quoth wishes he could trust has written something that contradicts Quoth's opinion. Or at least seemed to. Yes. And this gets to the fact that our own frameworks of knowledge are inescapable. Every one of us has a bias towards those things that confirm our own worldview. And the business of history is not about building an unimpeachable objective narrative. It is about finding a story. And that story may not necessarily cohere with the story that actually happened. Because the further you get out from an event, the harder it is to actually sort out. There are a lot of things that we will never know about many historical figures. We do not know anything about them save for what they recorded in their diaries and journals, which are naturally going to be filled with their own unconscious biases. We are never going to be able to know anything except for what other people maybe have recorded about them. And which pieces of the things that they have recorded are taught by people with their own agenda or influenced by other people that want their seven-year-old to know the cherry-picked version of how the United States was founded. You see also Columbus myths. Yes. I mean, that's an easy one. But yeah, you have stories about the founding fathers that portray them as sort of their own weird little Greek pantheon when it was just as messy as the actual Greek pantheon, <laughs> for being honest, which treat these figures with near godlike reverence when really they were flawed, like deeply flawed, and in ways that make them far less authoritative than maybe they actually were. And at the same time, it's really interesting when you see when people decide to throw out a version of the Founding Fathers that contradicts that narrative. For instance, when you see people talking about the separation of church and state. Also, we have managed to make them into legends and myth, even though they were real people, and you can read journal entries, newspaper articles. There are so many examples of primary sources in the historical record from these people. And... It's not like they are so far removed that their descendants don't exist now. People can trace their lineage back to the Founding Fathers and have these historical pieces of just record. And we ignore a lot of it because we want a specific narrative. We look for heroic narratives wherever we can find them, oftentimes in places where there are no heroes. However, we should probably get back to this book. Yeah, so... Again, here we have a literal draw where you have two competing sources which are directly at odds with one another. So how are they going to resolve this? Well, Will decides it's time for them to finally introduce Quoth to Puppet. Let's move on to chapter 40, which is also titled Puppet. So there are, of course, rules when you deal with Puppet. First of all, you have to be polite and treat him like you would anyone else, except, you know, polite. For Quoth, that is actually a difference. And you can't do anything to upset him. I get the impression that Puppet might be autistic. I get a little of that too. You get the sense that Puppet lives by a different set of rules from other people. To be fair to Quoth, this isn't the first time he's had to deal with someone who maybe is a little neurodivergent. I mean, compare Puppet to Ari, they seem to have a similar standing. Ari 
definitely has things that you have to observe with her. And Puppet's not too different. So the version of Quoth that we see dealing with Puppet is very similar to the way he deals with Ari. He takes on the same tone of voice, the same placation. And the same generally gentle demeanor. Puppet is also slightly comical in ways that are kind of disarming and charming. Like, he makes a big deal about trying to answer the door with his best Tabril in the Great impression. <laughs> and down to the part where he's like, no, that wasn't quite right. Let's do it again. Okay, knock on the door again. Okay, now. <laughs> so one of the things that I thought was really interesting here is when Puppet is doing his Tabberlin impression, it's very grandiose and intonated and with a booming voice, right? And Willem's impression of Tabberlin is more soft-spoken. Just to see a different cultural norm. Yeah, and a different version of heroism based on what it means to be this grand mythic figure. I kind of like that. So Puppet remembers, but doesn't quite remember, that Simon already came and visited him today. And they have a little friendly conversation and... Simon, the way that Quoth describes him, I think is lovely and a great example of the way that Pat thinks. I could sense the laughter tumbling around in him, trying to find a way out. I thought that was just a lovely bit of writing. Yeah, it's a really good description. And you can see that Simon is like, I want to treat this person with respect and dignity. And yet this is inherently funny. We can all agree on this, right? Exactly. There is something joyful to Puppet. I agree. I think also he's astute in observing other people. But as you were saying before, I, behind the scenes, I kind of interrupted to make sure that we touched on the laughter tumbling around. Will wanted to talk about the little bits of wordplay. Yeah, so let me, let me pull this up here because I thought this was a lot of fun. Both Quoth and Puppet do enjoy a good bit of wordplay. Puppet introduces himself with, I don't know you. Who are you? Rather forthright way of putting things. Quoth responds, I am Quoth. And then he, Puppet's response, you seem so certain of it. I love that line because that makes me think, is he? And then Puppet says, they call me Puppet. And then Quoth says, who is they? Who are they? Who are they then? No, who were they then? Who are they now? And then the response is great. You know, them, people. <laughs> this is just a delightful introduction and delightful conversation. So there's a description here. He continued to stare at me the same way I might examine an interesting stone or a type of leaf I'd never seen before. I know that we have talked about the love languages popularized by there's a book that gets kind of thrown out every time that you're in a relationship and you kind of have to discuss how you present and receive love. There is a tweet that goes around every once in a while that is the five neurodivergent love languages. Info dumping. I do this a lot. Parallel play. Support swapping. Please crush my soul back into my body. I don't know what that one is. And I found this cool rock, button, leaf, etc., and I thought you would like it. I have a friend from college who is this, and you know who he is. 
But it just reminded me so much of that. And it makes me think that maybe Pat has at least encountered other people who's, as an adult, do the very childlike thing of, I found this cool thing and I thought you would like it and I want to share. What my impression of Puppet is, is that he is a keen artistic observer. He reminds me a little bit of Leonardo da Vinci. Da Vinci wasn't the only person who painted all of these exquisite paintings and made all these great sculptures and everything. But, but there's something special about the way da Vinci viewed the world, which was that when he saw something, he compulsively studied it. And he did so without agenda or anything other than just to capture the essence of the thing. Whereas other sculptors and painters and general Renaissance men would study intently whatever it was they were commissioned to do, da Vinci just would study something because he saw it. And Puppet seems kind of like that. He sees whatever passes his transom and he observes it carefully. I think the difference here is this distinction that he's going to make between seeing and looking. Kvothe, at this stage in his life, is constantly looking. Always looking for things. And searching. Whereas Puppet says that he needs to move to just seeing. Which is to observe things as they happen, not as you want them to happen, as you expect them to happen, but just to actually observe them and appreciate them for what they are. And that, I think, is really potent as a worldview. It's a parallel line of thought to a lot of what Elodin is trying to teach Kvothe. There is more than a little bit of Elodin in Puppet. So back to Puppet and Kvothe's conversation. Kvothe asks, what do you call yourself? That would be telling, I suspect. I want to know who Puppet is! Puppet has his own secrets, and he is content to keep them. Also, Puppet gets to have candles in the library. Right? <laughs> Which, Quoth, you are, again, you're being a little bit um, hypercritical of someone else doing the thing that you did. Stop it. Why does he get to have candles? It's not even that. He's not saying, why does he get to have candles? And he's not whining about it. He's like, I had a little heart attack looking at all of the candles that were lit. And I'm like... Dude, dude, you held one next to a book, you idiot. My suspicion is also because Kvothe has come to understand the gravity of his actions. I think that he genuinely does have some concerns about this. I don't think that it's entirely hypocritical. Like, so for instance, if you've ever made a mistake and you see someone else doing the same thing and you know the consequences of this. You kind of just go in your head, no, 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 no. Exactly. I'm also suspecting that given that Puppet has his own sort of chamber down here, his own apartment in the bowels of the library, he probably has some kind of warding in place that protects the rest of the library from any stray flame. When we say library, we mean archives, but meh. So there are probably fail-safes and precautions I would also hope that he has some form of ventilation. Well, even though they're underground, there is a wall of curtains. True. The curtains probably hide the ventilation system. I also like that Kvothe has a little bit of cognitive dissonance regarding the thought that there might be windows, but they're also underground, which would be 
really interesting if Ari and Puppet interact as they are both creatures that do live underground in a closed system of sewer pipes and unused chambers that seem a lot like the Seattle underground where Seattle just kind of built on top of itself. There might be a little of that. I also kind of get the impression that these drapes and curtains may be more aesthetic than anything else because they can create a sense of texture and warmth that might otherwise be lacking. But why call it out in the text if it doesn't have a meaning? Who knows? I mean, Puppet is a creature of mystery. Maybe these windows don't look out onto the mortal realm. New things to think about, everyone. Man, I want Doors of Stone just to be able to get some answers. And my desire for this has been re-upped simply because of the charity live stream wager that Pat lost against all of the fans. He basically dared us all to give the charity more money so that he would release and read the prologue in chapter one of Doors of Stone to all of us on Twitch. It hasn't happened yet as of the time that we are recording now, but apparently it's supposed to happen tomorrow. Crossing fingers. And for all of you lucky souls, that means that it already happened about two weeks ago at the time of you listening to us or more because who knows when you listen to this, but it, this is releasing two weeks after he does that. Anyway, there's plenty of mystery here and some of it may be genuine mystery, some of it may be assumed. We also get a little bit of a sense for Puppet's namesake, which is that he whittles puppets of all of the people he encounters. And one of his first things he does upon meeting Quoth is creating a carven face in Quoth's image. He captures that sort of sense that Quoth is constantly thinking and strategizing. But one thing that really struck me here is Puppet says Quoth is always thinking three moves ahead. And when you think about like the great chess masters and strategists, they're usually thinking 10, 15, 20 moves ahead. Quoth thinks that he's clever and that he's thinking through a problem. He is limiting himself to three. Yeah. And part of it is because he is so convinced of his need for certainty. And his own cleverness. He doesn't think about what happens further down the line after those three moves. Now, granted, he might not have the spell slots available to do that. That's true. He is under a lot of stress constantly, a lot of it of his own making, but... We'll also see the limitations of this when we get to tack. Speaking of, we really ought to play that. We should. And maybe we'll do a, a stream of it. Put it on YouTube. Maybe we will. I think it would be better to play it on a visual medium for everyone to watch rather than on just an audio medium. So if you want us to do that, you gotta let us know. We own it. We're happy to play it. We haven't yet. I'm ashamed to say, even though I actually know the designer of it. Anyway, I do love that Puppet manages to capture Quoth's likeness really deeply. 
getting the way his brow furrows in concentration, the way he's constantly thinking of things, and maybe thinking more than actually observing. The way those thoughts maybe sometimes get in the way of actually observing. One of the things that actually interested me here, oddly enough, I had no desire to ask anyone what was going on. When you ask as many questions as I do, you learn when they are appropriate. And I'm just sitting here thinking, when has Quoth ever learned this? Also, I'm kind of wondering, why does he think that he asks so many questions when he won't ask an adult anything? He won't talk to Elodin. He won't ask a lot of questions of this person who is clearly smarter than him. He won't ask questions of Lauren even before Lauren had it out for him. And I actually don't think that Lauren really has it out for him. I think Lauren is trying to protect him from himself, which we will get to whenever we get to the next chapter. Yeah. Yeah, I just thought it was really funny to hear Quoth say, well, I've learned this. I'm like, when have you learned this? <laughs> yeah. But for once in his life, he manages to shut up. And unprompted Puppet then recommends that Quoth check out Renfalk's dictum. No clue what that is. Maybe this has something to do with seeing versus looking. Not only does Puppet just kind of casually throw this particular book out as a thing that Quoth should go look for, he tells him exactly where to look for it. In a organizational system that has been done and redone and redone and redone by multiple people that run the archives, as well as all of the people that work in the archives, he knows where this book is. Now, Quoth doesn't go and find it, because why would he? Because he doesn't do what anyone wants him to do, ever. But now I want to know what this book says. Yeah, there is definitely something unusual about Puppet's ability to catalog all of this mentally. This also strikes me as something that he knows all of this stuff, but to actually transcribe it all down is something that he just doesn't have the ability to do. He can only bring it up on demand. Maybe not ability, but maybe capacity, because the whole archives would be such a bear to try to catalog. I mean, to the point where there are lots of people that do try to catalog it, whose entire lives are spent trying to do that. And apparently Puppet is just a lot better at that part. But I don't think anyone has the capacity to be able to hold all of that knowledge. Well, and it's also the difference between knowing it and then writing it down. The act of writing it down is actually a laborious process in its own right. So he may be able to keep a running track of where everything is, but writing it down may just be beyond his capacity to do. But he can do an on-demand query of his knowledge base. Now, to get back to the story a little bit, because once again, we have veered a bit off track. Quoth and Will finally get to the point of wanting to ask Puppet about the Amir. I find it funny that Puppet realizes that Will is asking on behalf of Quoth, and he's like, make him do it. Also, he recognizes you guys obviously have a bet about this, don't you? <laughs> he's very astute. He's very aware. I love it. And I also like that this is the first time we hear someone talk about chasing the wind. He says that Quoth needs to chase the wind to follow his passions. You're too serious 
and only trouble will come of that. And I think there is some real truth to that. It can be really tempting to think that you have to treat everything seriously because we oftentimes conflate serious with important. We also often conflate joy with frivolity. Exactly. And I will also say that we in turn conflate frivolity with meaningless. Or childishness. And there's a real difference here. Sometimes the most important things are the frivolous and joyous things that help us to actually appreciate the world around us, to appreciate our relationships and our friendships and the things that bring us value. We can get so caught up in the grind of work, of drama, of all of that stuff where we stop thinking about the reasons why we do those things. Once you get into that mindset, it can be a very difficult thing to get out of. And so taking some time to consciously do something else to chase the wind is sometimes the actual right thing. To do something just for the sheer joy of it. It doesn't have to necessarily be an entire sabbatical. It could be something as simple as taking a break each day to play a musical instrument or to just enjoy doing something artistic or to write or to just go play a video game. Like it doesn't have to be something deep. Doing something that brings you pleasure and joy can be important in its own right. Write a journal, a story, put together a puzzle. Record a podcast. Edit a podcast. Exactly. These are important things, but they are not serious. And in fact, they're important because they are not serious. I mean, listen to a podcast. Yeah, all of these things. Anyway, back to the bet. First of all, Puppet quickly just calls out that the proclamation had to come from the church because the Amir were effectively above imperial law. So because their entire structure is that they are above the law in all things, it wouldn't matter what the emperor said. The emperor could make proclamations about him to lose blue in the face that wouldn't change the fact that unless the church also revoked their power, wouldn't give them anything. Then this is where Kvoth brings up the book that Willem found by Feltemi Reyes, who is a scholar that Kvoth himself actually generally respects. And he says, well, why is it that this version that Willem found says that it was done by the empire? And I will note that both Willem and Sim looked like they were about to swallow their tongues because Kvoth spoke out of turn. <gasps> Part of it is also Kvoth is generally interested in why this contradiction exists. I also think that this is why Willem is able to accept the conclusion gracefully, saying, this actually explains a lot. This explains why I had this mistaken idea. Because what he realizes is that it's entirely possible that the church may have wanted to distance themselves from the Amir because of their excesses. It also gives us a sense that they are both interested, at a certain point, not in finding out who is right, but which version of the truth is right. I think that that's the best type of competition. It's not competition. It's cooperation to whittle down all of the things that are incorrect until you get to the thing that is correct. And they find a solution that both preserves their image of Feltemi Reyes as someone who is generally an impartial observer of history, 
but it also explains this discrepancy. I'm also going to point out that it is entirely possible that both the emperor and the church issued the same edict in concert with one another as part of a power-sharing deal. Because if you're the emperor and you're trying to bring this rogue order under control, it is in your interest to be able to issue the edict and then it happens. And to work with the church to ensure that that happens. And then the church does the thing that actually does it. The next bit that I find very interesting about the conversation with Puppet. Puppet understands that Quoth is not done with his questions. Quoth does not understand that he is not done with his questions, but he is going to barrel through anyway. He asked, Puppet, do you know what is behind the locked door on the floor above this one? The large stone door. Makes me think that possibly it's right directly above him. Maybe. <laughs> and Puppet doesn't really answer because he answers sort of with a question. An admonishment and a question. I don't think the four-plate door should be any concern of a student. Do you? And Kvothe doesn't push back. I want him to push back. But this is probably the right time to not push back. You don't know that. Puppet seems to be open to continuing this conversation. Because at the end, he says, bring this one back sometime. I have some more work to do on him. <laughs> and that could be taken as more work to do on the human quote. Or on the puppet quoth? We'll find out. Will we find out? Hopefully. Our next chapter takes place a few weeks later, and we find Sim and Quoth studying together in tomes. Winter has fallen on the university, so the archives are naturally where a lot of students end up hanging out because it is warm. <laughs> and full of study material. But mostly because it's warm. And so they're in a rather large open room full of other students who are trying their best to be quiet. And Sim understands the gravitas, and Kvothe just kind of faffs about a little bit, I'm going to say. He's like, Sim, Sim, look at this thing that I found. And it's a book by the Duke of Gibeah, a journal. And Sim is horrified because this thing very easily could be something that was written on human flesh, or at least bound in human flesh, based on all of the horrifying accounts of what the Duke of Gibeah did to people. While Quoth views the Duke's actions from a rather academic remove, Sim does not. For Sim, all of this is stuff that was very real. This is something that wasn't just theoretical. These are things that were part of his family history because his family is from that region. This isn't just educational curiosity for Sim. This is horrifying reality. So, as I alluded to earlier, the Duke of Gibeah is a characterization of someone that is similar in spirit, at least if not directly in action, to Joseph Mengele, who was a Nazi doctor that I'm going to vomit if I have to describe what he did. But let's just say... While I appreciate that there are educational things that could be learned from what he did, his actions, his treatment of people that he didn't view as people, 
it doesn't excuse the actions. It doesn't make them right. It doesn't make it worth it. One thing that's really interesting here is we've run into, like I said earlier, one of the pitfalls of utilitarianism. It can be really easy to start thinking that for the sake of the greater good, the greater good, inexcusable actions may be done and that sometimes you have to pay a price. But as we see in this case, the Duke of Gibeah wasn't the one who had to pay the price. It was the people who he essentially experimented on without their consent, who basically were tortured by him just so that he could gather information. They were the ones who paid the price and they did not choose to pay it. And so when you have people who talk about, oh, but think of all the good that was done because of this. Ask Master Arwell what he would give to have the volumes of journals that were burned when the Duke's estate burned. He wants that educational material and he's looking at it from a remove. Sim can't do that. I can't do that. It's also worth noting that while Arwell might be perfectly happy to discover some of these things. He's not going to go out of his way to recreate those. Distinctions, but yes. It is a valuable distinction, I think. There is oftentimes instances where scientific knowledge is gained through unethical means. And this is the difference between valid research, ethical research, and ethical and valid research. The sense that I get from this is that Gibeah discovered a lot of true things through all of these observations, but he did not do so in an ethical way. He did not do so in a way that treated his research subjects with agency, with respect, or value for life. What he was doing was vicious curiosity, and he was justifying it to himself by trying to pitch that to future generations. It's sort of a shortcut to knowledge. It's really easy to observe things when you don't have to worry about cutting people open. You know, and he didn't try to find ethical alternatives at all. We get the sense that he didn't even look for another way to gather the information. Because he could have. Even with the limitations of the technology of the time and world, there are endless number of things that he could have tried to do. So, for instance, he could have introduced a harmless mineral into their bloodstream and then use sympathy to track it through the subject's body. This is something that they could have done through an arcanist. This is stuff that they could have done by saying, okay, we're going to track and trace this on your body to see how your bloodstream works. We are going to do this with your consent, with your knowledge, and then we'll get a graph of this and then we'll make use of that finding. Could have been done non-invasively could have been done in a way that people could have had a choice in doing. Instead, he kidnapped people, tortured them, and then discarded their corpses in mass graves. And then we have Quoth here, looking hundreds of years later, whatever, at a manuscript that he wrote with intellectual curiosity, which, great, but he's found something that he thinks is a clue. Might be. It might also not be the clue he thinks it is. So what he sees on the illuminated letter that starts off part of this journal reads out the greater good, essentially. The greater good. So the actual thing that is kind of hidden in this artwork is 
the motto for the Amir, which leads Quoth to believe that the Duke of Gibeah was a secret Amir, which leads me to believe that maybe that's not the case, but that this primary source may have been written or altered by the Amir. It's also the possibility that the Duke himself was not a member of the Amir, had no ties to the Amir, however, was influenced by that slogan. Because let's face it, it's a little on the nose, don't you think, to just put that in a journal? <laughs> yeah, but okay, so did you ever read The Eleventh Hour as a kid? The book with all the animals where you had to go find all the mice? Oh, yeah, I remember that one, yeah. I feel like that illuminated letter is a lot like how spoilers. There are just a whole ton of little tiny mine art mice all over the entirety of that illustrated book. Yeah. Like I say, it may be a key to understanding the Duke's motives, but it doesn't necessarily hint at his actual involvement. But I think that maybe it being all hidden and stuff, it, most people wouldn't notice this. Now, we get Quoth trying to have a conversation while there are also described as rich, stuck-up jerk faces. I'm just going to say jerk faces. Having a rather loud conversation in tomes about a girl that works at one of the local inns and where they're going to go off to enjoy their evening and all of the stuff that no one really cares about except for these two people. And Quoth instead of doing something like walking over and saying, hey, could you shut up or leave? Loudly, hey, I can understand your conversation perfectly. Would you like my opinion on this particular thing that you're asking about? Yeah, I mean, Quoth takes the disruption they're causing and then only compounds it. Let's be real. He answers rudeness with rudeness and he doesn't actually make the situation better. No, but he thinks he does. Yes. And his recount of everything afterward is that Sim thought that he did something to be proud of. Sim, I think, has a little more nuance in his view of this. Yeah, well. Sim oftentimes has more nuance than Quoth gives him credit for, I think. He notes that Quoth seems very certain of himself, that what he's doing is right. He doesn't think too much about what he's doing. When something seems wrong, he just goes and does. Quoth oftentimes reacts in ways that seem right-ish at the time, but oftentimes end up causing more trouble than they solve. It's good to know when to put on the gas, but it's also good to know when to pump the brakes, and Quoth right now only understands the gas. Accurate. Well, he succeeds in getting them to leave and continues his conspiratorial conversation with Sim, who is distinctly uninterested knowing that at this point, Quoth has just been sitting there at the archives studying about the Amir again, over and over and over again. Like he's bringing the stuff that he tried to do at the beginning of his tenure at the university back with a vengeance. And I think Sim is like, hey, could you cool it a little bit? Like, please stop it with the conspiracy theories. This is unproductive and it looks bad and you're reflecting onto me. And meanwhile, I have homework I need to complete. Could you just be quiet? <laughs> I love that where Sim goes, 
Sometimes I think the only reason you study with me is so that you can interrupt me. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I have been that person. You don't say. Moving on. At this point, though, Foth thinks that Sim is about to get kind of into that geeky, down the rabbit hole behavior with him. And then realizes that Sim is being polite because there is a person behind Kvothe that probably wants him to just shut up about the Emir. And probably also just to shut up in general, because this isn't just any person standing behind him. It's Master Lauren. Yeah. He's behind me, isn't he? <laughs> Naturally, Master Lauren suspends him from the archives for five days. I'm also sure that he's going to go ahead and hide or take that book that Quoth was looking at and probably every single other reference he can find about the Amir, and possibly even go talk to Puppet and say, could you just point me in the direction of all of the things that are about the Amir? I'm taking them now. Or add this one to the rest of the black hole. Maybe this really is just about Kvothe talking about the Amir. Maybe it's about Kvothe being kind of loud and disruptive in the archives. Maybe it's both. This does kind of feel like a case of Kvothe was inserting himself into something he didn't need to do. He didn't need to be the one who has to go make a scene with these other students. And the other students are not there for Master Lauren to actually admonish. But Kvothe is. As they leave the archives... Sim says, the world needs people like you. You get things done. Not always the best way, or the most sensible way, but it gets done nonetheless. You are a rare creature. I don't think this is a compliment. One thing I think that he does capture, though, is that Kvothe is seldom content to be a bystander. This is rare. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not. And I think it's a case where sometimes a person's biggest strength is also their biggest weakness. Kvothe's willingness to insert himself into a situation oftentimes does result in action when action needs to be taken. However, there might be better ways to do this. And in fact, oftentimes there are. But being willing to stand up for something that you believe is right, being willing to take a moral stand, I think that is important. But we also know that even as Quoth may be moral, he isn't really ethical because he doesn't actually have a framework. He doesn't have a set of values that actually guides him. He doesn't really understand the true horror of what the Duke of Gibeah actually did, for instance. I think he understands intellectually, but I don't think he understands viscerally. He doesn't take it seriously, to be clear. He's able to justify it as just this is something that happened a long time ago, there are no consequences for knowing this now. In a rare bit of self-reflection, though, Quoth does say, I'm not always so terribly sure of myself. And Sim smiled and said, I find that strangely reassuring. I think it's those moments of uncertainty that make people human. Moments of uncertainty and doubt are what help us to remember to examine and to think. It's in those moments of uncertainty that we can find compassion and we can find humanity for other people. If all we're doing is just reacting, oftentimes all we're doing is just hurting ourselves and other people. With that, I think it's time to 
go towards our Phronemos of the week. Yep. So it's my turn this week. And so I picked Puppet. I find Puppet to be really fascinating. He's got, like I said, sort of a Da Vinci-like commitment to observing the world around him and the people around him. I think he falls into the category of someone who sees, not someone who looks. He observes the world around him and all of the world around him, whether it is something that most folks would consider mundane or if it's something truly extraordinary. I think everything is extraordinary to him. I find it interesting that Quoth is more willing to listen to what Puppet has to say, even though it mirrors what Elodin has to say, because familiarity breeds contempt. And Quoth is now familiar with Elodin and his way of teaching. I think that Elodin is teaching. I think that Quoth thinks that Elodin is ranting. But to have the same information presented to you by a different expert or a person that you feel is an expert where you didn't think that the original person was, I think that can be valuable. I think it can be hurtful to the other people, but I think it can be valuable in yourself. I think it's also a case where Kvothe, as we've discovered, has issues with authority. Mm -hmm. If someone is an authority, he automatically does not trust them. And Puppet, he sees as something of a peer. I'm not even sure that he sees Puppet as a peer. But he's someone who's not connected to the power structure. I think, though, that he may feel like there's a little bit of superiority in himself over Puppet, because Puppet is odd. Like the way that he infantilizes Ari and infantilizes Sim, I think that in a way that he's just seeing someone who is neurodivergent and infantilizing them, which is unfair, but it is an unconscious bias that a lot of us have. The point here about Puppet, though, is that he quickly diagnoses Kvothe and understands where many of his problems are. Kvothe is so hyper-focused on looking for things that he oftentimes misses everything else around them that actually lends those things meaning. So an example of this is Kvothe's Thieves' Lantern. This is a bullseye lantern that only illuminates a specific area and then leaves the rest in darkness. And while that may be useful up to a point, what it also means is that anything outside of the narrow beam that it casts is completely in the dark. So he may illuminate something, but completely miss everything else around it. That's not a metaphor. I have no idea what you're talking about. It's a good example of the things that Kvothe values that are holding him back from truly accomplishing what he wants. So he is so focused on finding first the Chandrian and then the Amir and all of that stuff that he is missing the wider world around him and all of these things that could actually help him understand what he's trying to get. But because they're not in that narrow beam, he isn't really understanding them. Congratulations on circling the point and never finding it. Yep. It can be really tempting to hyper-focus onto something and to obsess over it. But it also can be incredibly detrimental if you are doing so exclusively, if you never come up for air, if you never cast your beam elsewhere just to see what you find, if you never just open yourself up to the world in front of you. And I think circling back to liberal arts education, 
that what liberal arts education does for a lot of people is open their mind to a wider swath of experiences, empathies, life that maybe they didn't experience directly, but they can experience through other people's experiences. It's also worth noting here that there's something to be said for living in the present. I find that if I am focused so much on possible futures, it can be very difficult for me to focus on the life I'm living right at this instant. And it can blind you to the things that matter. I think at a certain point you have to live in the world that you're in and you have to observe it as it exists. It's okay to have visions of the future. It can be good, but you can't live in those. You have to live in the world you're in and figure out what you want to do to bridge the gap between those two. And also accept the fact that the world that you are envisioning for the future right now may not be the one you actually want. So you have to open yourself up to those possibilities. Again, start to see rather than look. I think that that was a great for Nemos. I agree with you that Puppet is a symbol of wisdom that I would like to aspire to. And now it's time for an interesting fact. I believe it's your turn. It is. What do you got? All right, the holiday season is upon us. So I'm going to talk to you a little bit about the history of gingerbread. I'm gonna call this a history of holiday architecture, the gingerbread house. So I have a question for you. Have you ever actually built a gingerbread house? So I have been present when they are being constructed and I have assisted here and there, but I have never done the work myself. I was always more happy to help with things like kneading the dough and cutting out the things as opposed to the actual construction itself. That's okay. Gingerbread houses are notoriously terrible to try to like make stand up. I didn't know that that was supposed to be a load bearing cookie. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So have you ever wondered what possessed people to start using it as a construction material? Well, they have now. <laughs> well, I have too which is why I wanted to talk about this. And now you get a brief history on ginger, gingerbread, and a particularly global holiday tradition of building tiny houses out of cookies and icing. So ginger root was initially cultivated in ancient China and brought over to Europe via the Silk Road. I think everyone kind of either knows that or has intuited that. It was, and still is, used to ease and or cure certain ailments, including nausea which explains why it also was used to mask the flavor of decaying preserved meat, because it also probably helped you not vomit it up. It's also why like airplane ginger ale is always the best. It was also used to treat the plague. I can only imagine that it worked better for one of these applications than the other. Well, at least you weren't nauseous. Yeah, except that's not what the plague does to you. But you weren't nauseous, were you? <laughs> so it wasn't until the medieval era that ginger was actually used in sweets, such as cookies shaped to look like animals and people, and then they were decorated with gold leaf. This particular decoration style traces its origins, or at least a legend, back to Queen Elizabeth I, who popularized this particular decorating practice when she served 
gingerbread cookies to other nobility and dignitaries and had them decorated to look like the people she was feeding them to. That's grotesque. Doesn't it sound just lovely? Anyway, apparently there's also a saying about taking the guilt off the gingerbread, which is related to this particular decorating style. I have never once heard anyone ever say that. That's a new one to me too. Maybe it's more popular in Europe. And if that's the case, could some of our European listeners maybe tell us if the source that I found this on or the multiple sources that I found this on are just kind of like, I guess we're all just copying the same thing, which was originated by like some troll or something. (laughs) That's possible. I'm going to guess that that's possible. So the origin of the very first gingerbread houses is actually kind of lost to history. It probably just the fact that they're kind of cracker-like consistency. They're easy to make into shapes and the attempt to sell more of this stuff led people to be creative. But our popular version of what a gingerbread house is, you know, with all the icing and the sugar and the gumdrop decorations and all that stuff is probably due to the Brothers Grimm fairy tale of Hansel and Gretel because the witch lived in that kind of sugary cookie house thing to trap children in. Oh yes, this is exactly what I want for holidays. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) as was mentioned in a lot of the sources that I found, this is very not Christmas-like. Although I guess I imagine that if I were a medieval parent and I had like 30 kids or whatever, I might want a few of them to get trapped in a witch house. (laughs) That might be the best (laughs) Christmas gift ever. Fewer mouths to feed and all that. At that point, you're not making gingerbread houses. You're just feeding them whatever you can find. Yeah. Anyway, one more thing that I learned in my research that actually surprised me a little is that in France, there are gingerbread baking guilds that still exist that began in the Middle Ages, and they are sanctioned by the French government. This is actually common across Europe. There are people that are just dedicated to gingerbread. Guilds of bakers that are just dedicated to gingerbread. It actually makes sense, particularly in France. Trade guilds were the dominant non-nobility political and economic force. So you had these trade unions, people who were unified by their own particular specializations, they would band together to establish standards and make sure that practices were fair and equitable and that their interests were overall protected. The further down the rabbit hole you go, the more specialized you'd get. So it doesn't surprise me. I did not know about that. I am glad that I married a history buff. In parts of Europe, gingerbread is still considered an art form. And it's interesting to me that those traditions have held fast since gingerbread first came about in kind of a case of convergent evolution because every country has their own origin story for how gingerbread exists, their own recipe, their own historical record, if you will, of the first gingerbread being made in their country. But then again, it kind of depends on what your definition of gingerbread is since I kind of doubt that ancient Greece and Armenian recipes resemble modern gingerbread all that much. Just saying. That's really fascinating. I like that. Thank you very much, Phoenix. 
I'm glad that you liked it. I thought I would bring a little bit of holiday cheer into the podcast, even though I know that this is going to be released a few days after Christmas, but holiday season and all of that jazz. It brings glad tidings. Why, thank you. All right, so for me, it's time for the thing of the week. So I'm going to just give a recommendation for something that I have enjoyed, and well, actually the two of us have enjoyed here, and that is The Great on Hulu. So this is a heavily modified dark comedy loosely based around the life of Catherine the Great of Russia. Very loosely based. Very, 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 very anachronistic. I mean, it takes a lot of creative license with many of the particulars of the era, but if you actually think about what it really is, it actually makes a lot more sense. So it's taking this to make a satire of the fairy tale tropes that oftentimes surround our ideas of royal romance and family. It's about Catherine, who is a noble from Germany who is told that she's going to marry the Tsar of Russia. And of course she is wooed by great letters and all these ideas of romance and joy and comes to find that the difference is pretty striking. Rather than being this grand courtly lover that she imagines Tsar Peter to be, he's actually a petulant boorish fool who keeps his court living in fear of his capricious whims. He's the literal definition of a petty tyrant. He is petty in every possible way. Yeah, so if you want a fictional kind of character, not that this is not a fictional take, but a fictional character that is more current to the zeitgeist, thinking about Game of Thrones, Ares Targaryen. Or uh, Joffrey. I mean, he just has these ever-changing whims where he demands that everyone do exactly what he says, He's constantly in need of validation. Like, the thing that keeps you from absolutely loathing the Tsar is that there's a sense of just sadness about him. He's a pathetic figure. He is deeply pathetic. And while he can be terrifying because his whims are ever-changing and you can't necessarily keep ahead of them, he doesn't really have any concept of guilt or remorse or anything like that. He can be terrifying in the way he treats people. So I will also say he is brought to life brilliantly by Nick Holt. Yeah. I would say his performance is equal parts terrifying, comedic, and pathetic. Like, if you don't know, he's the current beast from the X-Men movies. He also played Nux in Mad Max Fury Road. I adore him as an actor. He is so multi-talented. And the actress playing Catherine, Elle Fanning, is also pretty great. She manages to capture both Catherine's early naivete and her growing disillusionment as she learns exactly what she's going to need to do to survive in the emperor's court. Also, you see her starting to understand that maybe she can do more than survive. Maybe she can use this position to actually accomplish some of her great aims, such as encouraging educational reforms for the greater Russian people, particularly for women. And she ends up attracting to her a coterie of fellow misfits who are all looking for a means to depose Peter and also find ways to dodge his ever-shifting mood. One of the things I note is the casting is really spot on and also surprisingly diverse. 
featuring multiple actors of color in roles that would normally be reserved for complexions generally described as milk-like. And it really works, because the goal is not to teach us about Russian history, but rather to hold up a mirror to the petty tyrants who strive to exert dominance in every arena of our existing lives. This could be anything from the boss who demands absolute fealty and refuses to accept bad news. This could be in a partner who doesn't know how to cope with criticism. This could be in the form of people who just try and control everything in our lives to make us miserable. And how you have to find ways to deal with these people and how you can find ways that are supportive and positive in the long haul. It's a way for us to also think about when are the times when we ourselves are being unreasonable in our demands of others. Like I say, one of the reasons that this portrayal of Tsar Peter works is that element of sadness and melancholy to him that he's perpetually trying to keep at bay. And that's what keeps him human and there is a part of him that's relatable. We can see those times when we ourselves are disappointed when something doesn't go the way we want. And then we see someone who handles it in a spectacularly <laughs> terrible fashion and maybe find a better way to deal with that disappointment. Might I also say, though, that this is incredibly hilarious. Yes. Like I say, it is a pitch black comedy, but it is still a comedy. And at its heart, the characters are human. And that's what makes it work. So I thought that this was a great one. This is something that was a lot of fun for us. So I strongly recommend it. Check it out. I second the recommendation. Moving on, let's talk about our seven words. So I had words from the book, and I've got a number of options here. So first we've got, our little Sim's father is a duke. Then, are you ever going to introduce me? I don't know you. Who are you? See little wooden quoth? See him looking? <laughs> then, it will lead you into trouble. I'm sorry, puppet, I've got to go. I grew up 30 miles from Gibeah. I'm sorry, weren't you talking to me? Then the Scribs weren't taking care of it. It's always the Amir with you lately. Small wonder folk were frightened of them. And then the one I actually chose was, being an arcanist is a remarkable thing. I did highlight that one as well. But I do want to say... Simmons smiled, I find that strangely reassuring, is also seven words. Indeed. So uh, you have words from life, do you not? I do, but I think you knew that. It was a rhetorical question. And you have a big grin on your face. I do. So what do you have? I have, I hope you've had a lovely holiday. Aw. So I do hope that all of you have had a lovely holiday. I hope that you enjoyed us releasing a little snippet, treat, whatever, of our coverage of Neil Gaiman's The Sandman last week. It is available on our Patreon, like the full thing is available as of the solstice, which was the 21st, for our patrons at that tier level. It was kind of a little gift that I wanted to give everybody, and we bent over backwards to try to make sure that we had recordings available for every release on top of giving you that as a little gift. So that is from us to you. On top of that, I do kind of want to talk a little bit about our other wonderful kind of holiday adventure, sort of, 
that we had last weekend and why our recording sessions kind of got compressed. We were given a wonderful opportunity from a lovely friend to go on kind of a whirlwind trip back home to Seattle to go to Emerald City Comic Con with an exhibitor badge because we have previously helped this particular person with a booth at the con a couple years back. We actually did a couple years in a row of this, which is a unique and lovely experience that is also exhausting. And so she was able to invite us up on a exhibitor badge where we got to go look around the con a little bit before it opened. And we wound up with a whole bunch of wonderful new geeky stuff in our house. But the thing I want to talk about is that we got to speak with Nate Taylor, who is the artist behind The Princess and Mr. Wiffle, which if you listened to some of our bonus pods, there is a little bit of a uh, backcountry bonus nutso theory out there that the princess from The Princess and Mr. Wiffle might be Ari. And when we mentioned that to Nate, he was like, I can neither confirm nor deny. And then he gave us a significant look. It was very significant. One thing we also discovered is that Nate Taylor is interested in all of your backcountry theories. He doesn't want these garden variety things. He wants them to be truly off the rails. Also, much like me, he has the inability to keep everything under lock and key. But unlike me, he has more information. <laughs> I'm not going to share stuff that he shared because most of it, I think, was either, if it's true, it's hidden under so many layers of not true <laughs> that I would never be able to figure out what is the truth and what isn't. But also, I don't want to get him in trouble because he's a delightful human being. And I highly recommend that you look for his books that he wrote with Pat. Also, the graphic novel that he and Pat have been working on that tells the story of Jax, the boy who loved the moon, is going to come out sometime soon. I don't know when. I think we're going to be getting a couple pages as part of the holiday wager that Pat did. Actually, we already have at least one because it is up on Pat's blog. Mm. I love it. It makes me so happy. But we were able to go and help support an artist that we enjoy, a couple artists that we enjoy, but specifically we got to also have a lovely conversation with him. And I would say that if you ever get the opportunity to go to a con where he is going to be like presenting his stuff, that he is a person that you could probably pick his brain for hours, but likely not able to do that with other people coming around the con. I will say that one of the benefits of the exhibitor badge, in fact, the main one, is that you can go in before the doors open as people are just setting up, and you can have those conversations that might be a lot harder when you're swarmed by all the people in the world. It was a lovely opportunity, and I'm very happy that we got it. We almost couldn't take it, but we wound up sleeping on a couch. One of my best friends, actually the one that I talked about earlier in this podcast, the one that I'm like, what? wait, what? You don't swear, sweetheart. That's what? <laughs> so anyway, I just wanted to give a shout out to Nate. He is at Major Sheep on Twitter 
And the only reason I needed to say that was because it is the most hilarious handle ever. He's definitely worth a follow. His artwork is adorable. The little coffee monster just makes me so, so happy. And yeah, he's got a good connection with Pat Rothfuss. And again, there is by now, should be, a record of Pat reading the prologue of Doors of Stone. And I'm almost certainly going to retweet it once it exists. And I hope it's going to be archived. I think it's going to be archived. But this is wonderful. Yes. And so to all of our friends who listen to the pod, I'd like to thank you for making us a part of your holidays and enjoying our conversations together. And I hope that it brings you comfort and joy with you and your families. And I wish you nothing but happiness going forward. Thank you very much, Will, for potting with me. And thank you, Phoenix, for potting with me. Join us next time on Tales from the Waystone as we cover chapters 42 through 43 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of reconciliation. We would like to thank our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And project management and writing, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can get access to the show a little bit early, depending on when I get done editing it. Bonus pods, which, I mean, we're going over the Sandman. I love this and I want people to hear it. And also, I like making art. I have mildly adjusted my due dates on these things because it became a little bit difficult to both edit a bonus pod and make bonus artwork. Sorry. That will be shifted by about a month. So the next one comes out in January. Yay. And there's a lot of other things that you could possibly get from us if you sign up, become a patron. We love you, regardless of whether you do it or not. And with that, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! True. The curtains probably hide the, the shaft. There's got to be a better way to say that. <laughs> <laughs> no, there doesn't. The curtains probably hide the ventilation shaft. System. Say system. Don't say shaft. The ventilation system. <laughs>